Quick disclaimer, due to the effects of COVID-19, James is recording some of these episodes virtually. And in this episode, it results in a slight delay between him and his guest. No one is trying to interrupt each other, it's just the pleasures of recording over a video call. Anyway, let's get on with today's episode. You found us. We've been aware of the groundswell of opinion. We've been aware of the undercurrents of give me what I want. We've been aware of the whispers. The whispers that the very best youth culture and youth marketing podcast is coming back for a fourth series. Welcome to the fourth series of Rocket Fuel. This is a podcast at the apex of tech, culture, commerce, and marketing. I work at Rocket, that's the business that helps brands and organizations better understand and better engage youth, children, and family audiences. We are bringing you Rocket Fuel Uh, Because we love it and we like to learn from the people that we meet and talk to. It's a series of one-on-one interviews with people at the centre of youth marketing and youth culture. Do be sure to get in touch with your recommendations for great guests and with any other feedback. We are Rocket HQ. We are Rocket HQ uh, across our social medias. And I'm at James.Erskine, E-R-S-K-I-N-E, at wearerocket.co.uk. So let's get to business. We've been away for too long. The first guest in our series has the honour of being the first returning guest to the podcast. He has two books which are well worth reading. Last time, we spoke about YouTubers. To my mind, the definitive tone on Google's video platform. But more recently, his book, TikTok Boom, covers all things TikTok. The culture, the content and the commerce. I do chat lots of TikTok with Chris, but I also move to areas such as the value of print media and the study and craft of being a journalist. Three programming notes before we begin playing the interview. Number one, this was recorded when the book came out. So some of the chat might seem a tiny bit dated, but don't fret, it's still uproariously relevant. And finally, the book came out last July. I hadn't read it at the time. It wasn't available and there were no preview copies, but I've since read it and it's terrific. So here's the interview with the awesome journalist, Chris Stokel Walker. So I'm here with Chris Stokel Walker, and Chris is a journalist, and he's also our first ever returning guest uh, on Rocket Fuel. That's your your dubious honour, Chris. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, last time we spoke, we spoke about your previous book. We spoke about YouTubers, how YouTube shook up TV and created a new generation of stars. And let's cut straight to it. I think the key reason you're here now is about your latest book, TikTok Boom, China's Dynamic App and the Superpower. 
why sounds like the silliest question why did tiktok excite you why did it look like it needed a weighty tome looking at all things tiktok i think because it is a race for the future of social media that is going on faster than youtube's development if you look at the rise of tiktok you know it, it recently passed 3 billion downloads, which makes it the first non-Facebook app to ever be able to do that, which is quite some feat. But even just the active user numbers, 732 million monthly active users is the latest data that we have from leaked documentation by TikTok, which kind of indicates it's double the size of Twitter in you know a tiny fraction of the time. It is you know, pretty much almost getting onto half of YouTube's audience. Again, YouTube is 15 years old, TikTok, just three or four, if that really, depending on how you kind of trace its lineage. So I think this was you know, something that was recognized, or at least I thought that I, I spotted something that was really interesting about it, where it was going faster than ever before. And it has this broader impact because it is this app that is not a Silicon Valley based app. It is something different and potentially has the power to shape the next 20, 25 years of tech. What are the common misconceptions around TikTok? Because certainly for a while, I think I was... I, I would talk about it as being a place where to be your silliest self, whereas Instagram was your most perfect self. And I also read bits and pieces that it was very, very young. But these things are being disproved. It's, it's not always the case, is it? No, I mean, for instance, um, when you look at TikTok's user numbers, even just last year, 43% of users in the UK were under the age of 14. And, and this was the stereotype of TikTok. It was this this app where kids did lip syncing and silly dancing and they just sort of performed. Now, two thirds of the users are over the age of 25. Um, it is growing up and its user base is growing up with it so you only need to look at the tv ads that they've they've done in in sort of recent months the fact that they were plastered over every billboard on european football championships you know i've interviewed people in their 80s for the book who are on tiktok so it's very very different now i think yeah i agree with that i mean let, let's go to the soft power argument because you mentioned china in the title of the book you've you've called it uh, uh china's dynamite app is there an element of soft power being generated by china with or around tiktok do you, do you think that and do you think that's a key part of its narrative so far yeah i, th I think that there is but the extent to which it is deliberately driven is the thing that is up for debate. And this is really the the challenging issue that I think is what is vexing so many politicians, particularly those of the kind of more bucolic, shouty, right-wing stripes in the US and the UK, is that they, you know, they recognise that China has this system of soft power where, you know, the president has said, that company should go out and present their best face of China to the rest of the world. ByteDance wants to be as borderless as Google, but whether or not those two things are sort of directly connected is is the big unknown question. I think it's one that yeah. I try and grapple in the book, but it's difficult because nobody knows truly the extent to which Yimin Zhang, who's the, the founder of ByteDance, the 
the sort of owner of TikTok is actually kind of a puppet of the Chinese Communist Party. They, TikTok, you know, resolutely deny this. Uh, I am a journalist who, I'm not the best in the world, I'll admit that, but I'm I'm decent. Um, you know, I've been doing this 10 years. I write for some of the world's biggest publications. I'm deeply sourced in TikTok. Their PRs are a little bit frightened when I email them and say, hey, what are you doing with this thing? And then they have to check and figure out what it is because they don't know about it. I've, I've heard that from yeah. other journalists and, and people. I haven't yet found that smoking gun of TikTok <laughs> is a deep state plot from China. Certainly it's soft power, but it's it's the same sort of thing as McDonald's and Levi jeans were to the Soviet Union in the 1980s. Yeah, I'm with you there. You mentioned ByteDance, and one of the things I certainly know from following you on Twitter, you're at Stokel, is you're certainly quite keen to look at the distinction, the differentiation between what ByteDance is doing and what TikTok is doing. A layman like me, Chris, would know that ByteDance are the parent company, but why else are you looking for the different behaviours between the two? Yeah, well, this is this is the interesting thing, and this is this kind of gets to the heart of partly why I wrote the book. Is we think of TikTok as an overnight success, and we think that quite rightly because it has you know, grown up and become huge over a very short period of time. But we almost assume that there is a a lack of agency in that growth, that it's somehow accidental, when in actual fact, it's very deliberate. And the reason why it's so deliberate is that the parent company of TikTok, ByteDance, is a $34 billion company in terms of revenue last year. It's valued, you, know, you can take your pick anywhere between 140 billion and 400 or 600 billion, depending on you know, which kind of market and which valuation you look at. Um, you know, ByteDance is an oldish company it's been around since 2012 they have a whole suite of different apps you know it's not just tiktok and its chinese version which is called douyin there are um you know productivity apps there's a kind of slack sort yeah. of app called Feishu or Lark in the West and they're also white labeling some of their underlying technology like one thing that didn't get into the book which I find really fascinating is you know ByteDance in 2020 or 2019, I can't remember which, was, you know, it had like a 700% increase in the number of patents that it filed over the year before. And yeah, it was filing more patents and some pretty big household names when we think of kind of tech and industry. So, you know, it, it's a much bigger company and it's hugely funded. And I think that's why I'm so interested in drawing that distinction, because it kind of explains a little more tiktok success let's dispel some myths or maybe agree some myths there was a there was a lot made a lot made of what tiktok would censor and and, and the kind of freedom of information there was there was talks around you wouldn't get recognized if you posted around the tiananmen square massacre for example are those things true or do you think the combination of bike dance tiktok are forcing almost the business to grow up and and respect the western world's thoughts on what information should be available yeah i mean it, it was true and and uh, tiktok to their credit have started to front up to that and said yes actually this was at one point our moderation guidelines and they've partly done that because me and other journalists have managed to get hold of them and they don't look good the previous examples of moderation guidelines and that is because of this weird genesis of this company you know we've we've grown up over the last 20-25 years with a world of tech that is cast in the 
the sort of model of a libertarian sort of West Coast America ideal of free speech and the ability to do what you want and kind of a, a, a moral compass and code around that. China operates in a very different way. It is very interventionist and you know, not for nothing is it interesting that when you look at TikTok's transparency reports, the proportion of videos that they take down without anybody seeing them on, and kind of their, their interventionist ideas and moderation are, are really much higher than, than Western social platforms. But I think what we're seeing is an adaptation of the app and its moderation guidelines. It's going from this very interventionist, very small C conservative, often quite bigoted, to be honest. You know, it yeah. used to be if you were disabled or you're ugly, then you wouldn't get onto the front page of the For You feed, which is probably why I'm still failing on TikTok a little bit. But yeah, they, they are changing that and they are localizing it. Theo Bertram, who is TikTok's director of public policy in the UK, was in front of a, a select committee in the UK parliament you know, in September. And he basically said as much. He was like, we used to have these guidelines. And it was because they were written up by someone in China with a Chinese worldview several years ago. And we are developing that. And and um, adapting. And, and in the book, I talked to you know, someone who oversees their moderation worldwide. And you know, he, he says that they, that's kind of the plan for the future is to have a much more diverse, much more locally driven view on what is and isn't acceptable. It's fascinating that you call the platform itself interventionalist because I actually had a question around that and it was this. I think whether it's just that time and familiarity breed this, you sort of know what you're going to get on Instagram and you sort of know what will fly on Instagram. And the, and the same is true of other platforms. But with TikTok, I think of the different components, the, the creators on the platform, the platform itself and the advertisers, it seems like TikTok is a bigger presence than on some of the other platforms. Whether that be because not everybody knows the algorithm and can work the algorithm yet, whether that is just because it's a newer art form, if you like, do you think in terms of those three parts that TikTok seems to have a bigger slice of the connection? Yeah, absolutely it does. And it, it does come down in large part to that algorithm. So it it is, you're right, absolutely, James, it is correct that creators struggle much more to tap into the algorithm. And, you know, we've spoken, you know, last year and multiple Ooh. times about this, the idea of if you get enough digital creators in a room together, at some point, invariably, they'll start talking about the algorithm. They'll talk about it as if it's this mythical god that you have to please and nobody really knows how. Um, you know, TikTok's algorithm is much more impenetrable, but that is in large part because of the way that content is presented. So it's not a social graph in, in the way that a lot of other platforms are of, you know, people who you know like this, therefore we will show you this. It's it's a content graph, which is, you know, you like this stuff. This is stuff that we think is similar to that and you'll therefore get served it. So I think you know, that is in part why they do it. But you're right, TikTok has much more care and curation over every aspect of it, not just, you know, the, the stuff that you see when you open the app, but for instance, the fact that they've kind of set the the path down this 
route of directly funding creators through you know, yeah. their creator funds or the fact that they are brokering brand deals with creators on their platform through the creator marketplace you know things that were in the era of youtube and instagram and you know, even Vine and other places were handled by third parties and maybe you know, YouTube recognized, oh, actually, we've left some money on the table there. TikTok is learning from those mistakes and it is yeah. much more vertically integrated. Is there anything else you see TikTok doing that elevates themselves? I mean, we're talking in the week that uh, the New York Times ran a story about how they're running, uh, taking job applications via TikTok now. They, they seem to be, and, and there's that big education piece that they're looking at. It seems to me like they're moving as far away from the, the, the silliest platform as they possibly can. Yeah, I mean, they, they claim to be the place that culture starts, and it is difficult particularly now to kind of deny that or, or to to kind of poke holes in that argument because you look at the music industry and it affects them you look at as you say the idea that they are basically doing job applications now you look at as you said learn on tiktok which is kind of becoming an education platform you look at the fact that they're doing tiktok jump and other different things that tie in with shopify which is yeah. designed to corner the e-commerce world the fact that they are pushing live streams which is taking over from Twitch and YouTube and things like that. You know, all of these things are designed to try and spread themselves as broadly as possible. The fact that they've gone from 15 seconds or, 20, or uh, 60 seconds maximum to three minutes maximum now, and the fact that they have smart TV apps and they're on Amazon Fire Sticks. So, you know, all of this is designed to essentially expand their worldview, and they do think of it as um, almost like building a nation. You know, Alex Zhu, who is one of the executives at TikTok, he, he founded Musical.ly, which was kind of bundled into the app in a, in a big billion dollar purchase back in 2017 when he was building musically he talked about this idea of building an app's user base is like building a country you have to have a middle class and you have to have the opportunity for people to move up that and you have to have the ability for people to make money who's covering tiktok well except for you <laughs> i read a I read a really good piece in The Atlantic, I think it was probably two months ago, that was just so well written and so well resourced around a, a TikTok house, a TikTok mansion. And, and, and are broadly everybody covering it with a similar outlook? Or, or are there any people out there that are purely seeing TikTok as a force for good? Or how, how do the different reports of TikTok, if you like, bring it to life? And what should we be looking for in the future? Yeah, well, I think TikTok's coverage as with all of sort of internet culture has has become much more mature over the last few years. It's kind of really interesting because we're at this this weird point where internet culture coverage has has become respected in a way now that I think it hasn't been for many, many years. I, you know, I've bitched and moaned for years about the fact that I, I struggle to get people to take these stories seriously and editors to pay attention, even though it's, you know, magnitudes of an audience greater than anything that they have. Um, yeah, like, you know, the, the sort of same people who were covering YouTube and, and other platforms are doing incredibly well here. So, um, you know, Taylor Renz is an 
individual that you know is doing incredible stuff with the New York Times, the entirety of Insiders Digital Culture team, which was previously Business Insider. As you mentioned, there are people at the Atlantic doing this well. There's a lot of really fascinating newsletters. There's a there's a UK kind of culture watcher uh, called Alice Ophelia who does an amazing newsletter um which is also she has like a guest spot on a, a newsletter called the published press so we're kind of we're seeing a more mature level of coverage and i think that's important because you know youtube and other platforms have obviously had these huge real world impacts and and you know to some extent the journalism didn't really match up to the impact and you know we try really hard but we sometimes miss things and that's even more important because of tiktok's kind of odd positioning in the middle of this geopolitical battle and and the issues that it's faced So I'm still here with Chris, Chris Stoker Walker. As well as being a writer, as an author, you're a journalist. We spoke last time in May last year, and we were discussing bits around freelance journalism, bits around new models of news. And I thought, whilst we've got you, before we go back to the world of TikTok, I'd love to kind of look and readdress some of those things. I want to look at what's been known as the Trump bump. So this week that we're talking in uh, in July has seen the Atlantic, the New York Times, look at different problems with their own circulation and with their own audience. In, in a strange sort of way, Trump has been quite good for certain sections of the media. Um, do you see him as stopping the decline of certain media outlets, or is it not quite as simple as that? I would love him to be the saviour of journalism, but I think what's really interesting is, is that we we've already seen the kind of first shockwaves of the post-Trump era. I was looking at some data, um, I think it was a couple of days ago, that kind of showed like 20% drops in in views for news websites over the last year. And I think, you know, part of that is directly attributable to the fact that we no longer have a madman who we need to check whether or not he's going to close the world up every single day. So, I, you know, but I think um, the one thing that the Trump era really showed for journalism is the value of it. And I think it really crystallized in, in the public's mind the importance of actually having that press still around. So, you know, while you know, I'm still in an industry that is in terminal decline, I think hopefully it is slower than you would hope it had been pre-Trump. So we maybe have him to thank for that in a bizarre way. Why should we as citizens, as global citizens, why should we support print? What does it do that other models can't do? It's just beautiful for one thing, but it also allows you to um, to take a sort of longer, more considered look. I mean, I, you know, I'm bound to say this as someone with a physical book out as well, but like I think that there is something really nice about detaching yourself from a screen and the distractions of it and actually just spending time with something that a lot of people have put effort and care into. Um, and that's not to say that online media, you know, apps and social media platforms are 
are any less work to produce journalism for because they're often more work. But I think it's, you know, there is a difference in cadence and in depth and in how you tell a story through print that is much more, much more long lasting, much more permanent and, and potentially a little bit more um, weighty than some online stuff. You know, it, it's the same reason, you know, why do we have. I can't call it a magazine because I used to write for it and they never call it a magazine. Why do we have a newspaper? Because that's what they call it, like The Economist in a world where social media exists. It's to contextualise all this stuff. It's because it runs past you in a blur and you go, well, what the hell was that? And then you need someone to sit you down and say, right, this is what happened. This is why it's important. This is what you need to remember of the 15,000 different things that you encountered last week. But it seems like, in a simplistic view, you've got the twin jet engine of an aeroplane of subscription revenue and ad revenue, and nothing else works to replace that. You've seen semi-innovative models which offer you access to their newsroom, like Tortoise. You see micropayments with Readly and with Apple News. But is it too much of a generalistic thing to say that that isn't really working. It always seems to revolt back to either the ad model or the subscriber model, and everyone prefers the subscriber model because it's less volatile. Yeah, I, I think that is still sadly the case at the minute. You, you highlighted some really interesting examples in, in Tortoise, and you know, the micropayments thing is is really fascinating because that is the one thing that everybody seems convinced is going to be the saviour of the journalism industry. If you can pay you know, 5p for a, a story every time you want to read it then you will do so and you can build up your own newspaper and yet nobody seems to have actually managed to develop this you know totemic version of that service that everybody will have to use and therefore everybody will be comfortable with and you know i hope that that comes but it feels like we've been saying jam tomorrow on that front for I don't know. Well, like, I, I'm sure that I wrote a story about it for The Economist, you know, right basically when I started in the industry. Yeah. So, like, you know, eight or 10 years ago. So it, it's it's frustrating. I think, yeah, we're going to be relying on those two big beasts of income, as you said. And as, as yeah, you pointed out, the ad market is so volatile, and particularly, you know, in a time of COVID for print, yeah. it was, you know, that the bottom fell out of that market for a, a long, long period of time. So, yeah, people are going for the sanctity of locking people in on subscriptions. Let's talk about your other side hustle, if you don't mind me calling you that. Mm. You're a lecturer. You're, you you do bits and pieces uh, with students at Newcastle University. Is that correct? It is, yeah. Nice. And I'm guessing, or at least I'm hoping, we've moved a little way away from people rolling their eyes at degrees that aren't PPE or English. I'm guessing, <laughs> I'm guessing people understand that the need and the, and the reason to have journalists. I'm just wondering about how applied the conversations you're having with them are. Are they aware of the commercial options that that will be coming up for for them to dis, to discuss and debate in terms of viable economic models? And are they, are they up to speed with digital culture or more so because they're living and breathing it? If they come to Newcastle University and they study on the journalism programmes with me, then yes, they do. And this, this is, you know, <clears throat> at, at the risk of kind of sounding the, the trumpet here for us, you know, I was brought in to Newcastle University with maybe three or four colleagues 
you know, four or five years ago to develop from scratch a summer MA module that was essentially meant to be a finishing school for these students. Yeah. They, they'd kind of been taught all the theory, but they didn't have the practice. It used to be that Newcastle University had a, a press association course, which you know, Newcastle was one of the bases for that. But then the press association, like lots of media, moved down to London. And so we were brought in to kind of replace that. And, and wow. one of the things that we did was root it very much in the digital reality. So the very first session of the very first day that I took when I started teaching in the summer of 2017 or 2018, I talk them through the history of journalism. I talk them through the business models. I say, you're in a dying industry, but the thing that is really useful for you is that you understand where the future is going. Um, you are a consumer of media in this digital environment. And so, yeah, you are the people that the kind of frazzled, besuited old executives at these publications are desperately trying to hire because they're hoping that you're going to unlock the secret of what is the next way that we present journalism to audiences. I have to often be careful because sometimes I say things on the internet and Newcastle University think that they now have a little bit of ownership over what I say, which is not correct. But I do take pride in the fact that at our institution, you're taught by working journalists. Like, yeah. like I write a story in the morning for a major international publication and teach a student in the afternoon how I did that. Like yeah. lots of journalism programs in the UK are taught by people who retired 30 years ago and who probably last had an original thought 40 years ago. Like <laughs> it's, it's really important, I think, that we, we teach the realities of journalism now. And we we should illustrate for the for the listener. You, you write for Wired, you write for the New Statesman, you write for the the, the BBC. Who have I met? The Economist. You mentioned so so yeah, lots and lots of yeah global publications. So this is not yes. yeah anywhere stupid enough to take me. <laughs> Final question in this bit, and it's more on the role of you as a freelance journalist. And I think frankly, it's because I forgot to ask it last time, but. Do you sense that people follow you about? Who's the bigger brand or does it depend on the reader? Do they go to the Telegraph and, be, and smile when they see your name or do they see your name and seek out where you have written for most recently? So this is, this is the interesting thing. People do that for a number of journalists. I am not big enough for that i don't think i you know i have niches that i cover and i have beats that i i cover well that are known to editors and they'll come to me and say this is the kind of story that you write so we'd like you to do this for us but no i'm like i'm a very small fish in a very big pond i think in reality so it, like you know, even i find it fascinating like i you know i i wrote a book on youtube you know the first kind of in-depth independent one on YouTube. I'm, I've written the first independent in-depth book on TikTok. And yet there are still people who in the industry are like following me today and going, oh, I've yeah. never heard of you. So I think you know the brand's bigger, absolutely, in my case. There are some journalists like Taylor Lorenz or in the UK in sort of the internet digital culture space, Amelia Tate, who people mm. will say, right, this is... An Amelia Tate story. This is a Taylor Lorenz story. I'll follow them to the ends of the earth. Partly because I'm not good enough. Partly because <laughs> I, I'm not in 
the London media bubble as much, partly because of you know a variety of different reasons. I you know I would be amazed if anybody actually follows me because of me rather than because of the work that happens to have my name at the top of it. I think in a way you just cropped up in most of the places I read magazines. That's how I became aware of, of you. So it's, it's just similar. I have a, a similar media diet to the one that you pitch your stories to. So that's how I work there. So I'm still here with Chris Stoker-Walker. He's the first ever returning guest to Rocket Fuel. Our first chat, the end of May last year, was a great one. We discussed lots and lots about your first book there. Um, oh, it's not your first book, because you've written on one on Twitter as well. Is that right? Yeah, but that was... that was. I, I wrote two when I was doing an office job, and they're both crap, and so I've kind oh. of disavowed them. They, they were before right. I was actually doing journalism, really. So they, they exist, they're out there, and I'm not afraid to admit that they're out there but i just think they're not very good so i wouldn't bother (laughs) fine so your first book on youtube we're now on to the tiktok book what was better to write about was it youtube or tiktok what excited you more more exciting is tiktok but you know less frustrating is youtube and that's just because tiktok is such a live issue and is you know when i was writing the book on youtube i didn't have the the very real risk that you know, the app could disappear halfway through writing the book because, you know, the world's richest man, world's most powerful man, decided, he, I don't know what it was really, that he didn't like the cut of their jib or something like that. It, you know, yeah. It, it was the, 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 you know, the number of tweets, exasperated tweets that I put out over the last year saying, oh, well, this has happened, so I have to rewrite this section of my book is quite astounding. And I didn't have that with the youtube book in terms of like which is you know and and that was enjoyable in its own way in a kind of sadomasochistic way but i think the tiktok book is a better bit of work it's much more deeply reported people were very kind you know an editor at wired when the youtube book came out said that i know youtube better than youtube themselves which is always a nice thing to say but if i if that's kind of the acclaim that i got for the youtube book like I personally feel like I know TikTok far better than I knew YouTube at the same stage of publishing this book. So, you know, TikTok is kind of more fun to do. And what's, what's covered in the book? What's the lengths and breadths? And another question, which seems like a silly one, but I am fascinated, is how late can you add details with the news agenda constantly shifting? How many times can you go back to it and say, oh, can I just tweak this? Yeah, so, I mean, in terms of what's in the book, it's, it is kind of a detailed explanation of the history of how TikTok came to be, the predecessor apps, you know, both those that kind of got rolled into TikTok, so that's, you know, Musical.ly and Flippergram and others, but also those that that kind of paved the way, I suppose, for TikTok, including Vine. So one of the interesting things is that for many years, TikTok has uh, wined and dined a former senior Vine executive in order to pick their brains about what went wrong with Vine so that they can not repeat those mistakes. Um, it, you know, it, there's also explorations of its impact on culture, on media, on society, on business the huge geopolitical battle that went on yeah. and trying to explain what on earth went on there and it's just chock full of detail from within the company um you know i was very lucky in that tiktok setup maybe kind of between half a dozen and a dozen interviews with people who work in the company for me um yeah i was luckier that you know, multitudes more 
than that number of current and former TikTok employees felt willing to trust me to kind of write the definitive history. And so I got some juicy information out of them. In in, in terms of um, the the kind of how late can you leave it question, <laughs> yes. ordinarily for a book, it is um, not that late. You know, publishing is very, yeah. very slow and social media moves very, very quickly. One of the benefits of having a, a publisher that is you know, not one of the, the big, huge companies is that they they can kind of they can squeeze those timelines a little bit. So yeah, for instance, you know, I only got my printed copies of the book last week. I think it was because they only came back from the printers. Then because we sent it to the printers as late as possible, so it is you know up to date up to about June twenty twenty one. Yeah, there was a, a review in the New Statesman that that was pretty positive about the book to be honest but it, it did say that you know one of the challenges of any book on the internet is that yeah. at some point it kind of it has to draw a close and it is outdated one of the interesting things is the the review copy that we sent to the new statesman is not the final version of the book we had time to actually add extra yeah. bits in, so <laughs> wow, we're, okay. we're trying where possible to to update <laughs> it as most um, you mentioned the effect on business. Obviously, that's something that in my day job working with Rocket, that's one of the things we've been doing. We've been looking at TikTok for campaigns. We've been launching TikTok profiles for brands as diverse as the London Dungeon and Bloomsbury Publishing. Do you think there are brands that are making it work for them? I know that's a loose question, but have you seen good examples of brands working with TikTok? Yeah, I mean, there's there's um, Little Moons is obviously the obvious one. Yeah, they've kind of just had a a ridiculous management of success over the last time. You know, and the, the the obvious ones that you also kind of list in any rundown of this. You know, the London Dungeon is actually really really good in terms of what they do on TikTok. So yeah. it's fascinating to learn that that you're behind that. You know, the Black Country Living Museum is always the one that people cite because it, it kind of it just gets it in terms of that kind of quirkiness. Ones that I'm really fascinated by are, um, I, I've kind of got myself, you know, people talk about like, what side of TikTok are you on? Because, you know, the algorithm always saves you off these really weird niches. Yeah. I, I've found myself over the last few months kind of getting served a lot of content from sweet wholesaler TikTok. Um, mm. And they do things really well. Like they, they'll engage with their audience in a fascinating way and they'll actually go behind the scenes as, they pick and pack orders and i i I find that aspect really fascinating was a a really interesting story by a publication called rest of world about the tiktok accounts of like factories that produce rubber gloves in china or something like that and this has become like an industrialized process where there is essentially a video production company that goes around chinese factories and says we can get you brand recognition you know you're essentially a white label manufacturer you're making rubber gloves that other people will slap their labels on but if you want to kind of be the cool one of those that other brands say we get our stuff from this factory wow then we'll go on tiktok and we'll help you produce these cool videos that's incredible i think yeah just for the benefit of the listener i think the thing when we the one thing that we did do with the london dungeon was allow ourselves to be reactive so they were running a partnership with a 
charity that were raising the awareness of sexually transmitted infections. So when we came up with a STIC shanty, we knew it would fly and it really did. So it's just almost leaving those gaps in your plan to enable you to do stuff quickly. Again, your point around how quick social media moves. Do you think creators are making it work for them? And do you think that's a good sign? I know we discussed earlier on about how important creators are and could be to TikTok. To me, it seems like they have a relationship and they're in the ground floor, not at perhaps the third or fourth floor where they were for YouTube and Instagram. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. So obviously one of the benefits of TikTok is that so many more people find it easier to be creators just because of the ease of production of content there. And and so I think that, as you say, the, the power imbalance is, is maybe a little bit more of creators on the ground floor than the third or fourth at the minute. And you don't, you know, even just the way that the app is set up, you don't have as strong a parasocial connection and yeah. therefore you don't have as big a celebrity as you do on a youtube you know obviously you know, people will crawl over dead bodies to buy whatever charlie d'amelio is is advertising and things yeah. like that or Alison ray but you know the the number of bona fide tiktok superstars i think is is significantly smaller and that's not that's not accounted for the different size of the user base of the app it is just that there is a smaller group of people because you are served so much more varied content and you're not subscribing necessarily to a person so if creators are it's interesting because creators i think generally are relatively happy on the whole with tiktok in the sense of and this this you know i include details in the book about the formation of a very strong connection with creators that dates back to the douyin days where tiktok and bite dance essentially bring on board creators almost as collaborators and partners they use them as a b testers and they they bounce ideas for new features off them and they often bring them under some sort of like salaried contract where yeah. they'll say we'll pay you this amount of money in order to give us your feedback and and there's the creator council on tiktok in the west which is starting to replicate a little bit of that but as far as i'm aware no money changes hands but despite all that and despite the fact that tiktok are trying really hard to keep people on side the creator fund payouts remain underwhelming the overall percentage of revenue from the creator fund versus say youtube ad revenue is you know a fraction of what it is on youtube and so you know yeah. i think tiktok could potentially be in for a, a rocky couple of years but the issue is you know when youtubers were disappointed with youtube the point that i always made is that they are sadly replaceable despite the fact that they do incredible work you can yeah. plug and play someone else in and you can do that even more so with tiktok and that's very much what tiktok say isn't it don't make content make tiktoks they say to every advertiser you have to do it in our way in order to cut through and but with there is a yeah a certain way to do things if you like and, and with that comes an element of replaceability indeed it's, it's really interesting to see how that kind of works let's ask two last questions and ask you to future gaze you can either be positive or negative here chris um What's going to be next for TikTok and or who gets it wrong? Have you seen any examples of rubbish work on TikTok, whether that be creator brand or TikTok themselves? And what might happen next? 
Yeah, well, I mean, the ones that invariably are rubbish are the ones that ironically don't eat don't follow the advice that you you said TikTok gives to lots of people, which is don't make ads, make TikToks. And so there are a lot of brands on there who, as far as I can tell, just kind of recut their TV ads, put them into nine by 16, and it looks awful and incongruous. What is funny, forgive me interrupting, was did you see that Nando's ad that was just a TikTok meme taken from TikTok and chucked on the telly? It's incredible when you notice it going the other way. Yeah, well, this is the impact of TikTok on culture now which is is really really bizarre but i think you know i think the the brands that are kind of just doing that are being a bit lazy and i understand why because you know some of you know I, i've through various means have, have gained access to some of the presentations and you know things that, that tiktok gives to advertisers and you know, for instance, when they were talking about the new fronts in the US earlier this year, they were talking about like the amount of trust that you have to give to a creator in order to allow them to just do their thing to tell their story authentically, which butts up against everything that companies know about protecting their brand. So you know, people who do that, I think, are are going to be in for a hiding. Um, but I think that they'll end up being dragged along just by sheer dint of force. Because, yeah, TikTok, as you say, as soon as you start seeing TikToks on TV, that's a big move. What will TikTok's lasting legacy be for the way it's changed young people's behaviour? What do you think TikTok has done, whether it be for the good or for the bad, and its effect to young people? So this is what i find really interesting and, and this is kind of the last maybe third or quarter of the book is we're at this fork in the road and we don't yet know which way we're going to go because there is this idea of we've done things for 15 20 25 years in the social media space and with that the development of the creator industry the creator economy is legion and others like to call it we've done that in a very specific way that is in silicon valley's mold and we have the opportunity at this fork in the road to continue down that path or we have the opportunity to go down the path that tiktok is kind of doing which is a framework that is maybe a little bit more rooted in kind of the way that it's done in china at the minute with you know the much more live streaming much more e-commerce um just everything faster a lot more complicated things things like that and that will have knock-on effect on everything like if you start to you know if you think of tiktok as a trojan horse for kind of chinese tech taking over from a silicon valley tech then tiktok's success means that you have more likelihood of you know WeChat becoming even bigger, you know, and going beyond necessarily the the Chinese expat community and those who talk to the Chinese expat community. And if that happens, then you have the idea of the super app, but like the good super app, not the Facebook yeah. super app, where nobody <laughs> likes anything that is in that feature. And so therefore you have you know, this idea of like centralized data and suddenly you have your id and your bank and your social media accounts and content preferences and what you search you know like even more so than like the explicit google idea of like google knows everything about you you start to triangulate that and you have a you know, that doesn't just have an impact on like how you use platforms that has an impact on 
your security and, and things like that. So, you know, if if TikTok can weather the geopolitical storm, and there's still no guarantee of that, you know, yeah. one of the very last rewrites that I did in the book in June was, well, Donald Trump's lawsuit has been halted against TikTok to type, you know, trying to close it down. But Joe Biden, in withdrawing that executive order from Donald Trump, specifically said, I'm not done with TikTok. I'm going to look at this. And, you know, in many ways, Joe Biden is more of a material threat to TikTok than Donald Trump was, even though Donald Trump was, you know, a heartbeat away from actually just shutting down the app. And that's Particularly, because- and we're, we're speaking in the week where he has said to Facebook that they are allegedly killing people. That is his quote, right? So it's, it's yeah, it's still in the news. It's still making headlines. It is, and it, it's, it's more concerning because you believe that it would stand up in a court. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. Yeah. Like, the thing with the Donald Trump one was, and you know, I, I kind of, you know, there were times when I panicked and thought, well, actually, maybe I'm wrong about this. But, you know, the idea that I always had was this is survivable for TikTok because all you need to do is protest it in court. Yeah. And a court will say, well, this is clearly just mad. Yeah. And therefore, it's not constitutional. It's not right. It can't happen. Whereas, Joe Biden is going through due process and due process is a scary thing because if they find something, then they could close it down and they could say, well, this is legit. Yeah, It's not just a crazy man saying, hey, I'm going to shut you down. Like this is based in fact. So if it survives that, then I think it, it reshapes society, tech, our interactions with each other online in a huge way. If it doesn't, we continue with the same Silicon Valley thing. And, you know, we say, well, that was a weird couple of years. But um, yeah. you know, when I started doing this book, my publisher and my agent were like, do you really think TikTok is going to stay? Because we've had a lot of apps that have come and gone like a flash in the pan. You know, Vine is the perfect example or, you know, a thing like Yo or, or something like that. You know, the, the road is littered with the corpses of good ideas that turned out to be fly-by-night social media platforms. Um, I managed to write a book in the time and TikTok is still around and TikTok is you know, kind of leading the way now. So I think it could potentially be a Facebook killer if they do things right. Um, one question I've just been prompted that I will really wish I'd have asked earlier, but I'll ask it now, is just because I'm fascinated by your thoughts and I'm fascinated on this subject. I come from an audio background. I used to be a radio planner buyer back in the day. I'd love your thoughts on the part that audio is playing on social media. So Clubhouse was that flash in the pan a little while ago, and then Twitter, Facebook announced their own audio offering. Have TikTok got a ready-to-go audio offering? I suppose duets, they would argue, is something on that line. And where do you see audio and social media coexisting and, and what is that relationship? Yes, I mean, you know, TikTok is, is obviously looking at that sort of thing as they are with anything um, that is seeing an audience. I mean, you know, Clubhouse is fascinating. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fine breaching this embargo because they, I didn't actually agree to it. But I, you know, today, probably about an hour before we started recording, I got a, a press release from Clubhouse's PR saying, hey, Clubhouse is finally coming out with beta we're going to be available to all users from Sunday. And I'm like, well, okay, who uses Clubhouse anymore? Um, but I think what is interesting is, you know, even if Clubhouse was very much a pandemic era 
phenomenon that yeah. you know didn't really come to fruition in the way that we thought. The you know it moved the needle for audio on social media platforms. So yeah, while Clubhouse might not work. Yeah, and I think it'll probably still have a you know an audience of some some areas where you know the devotees who kind of were yeah. there from the start. You still have you know uh, Twitter Spaces that is kind of you know an easily a more easily accessible version of that. You know, the fact that we're talking on a podcast is kind of interesting yeah. and still really relevant. You know, audio is audio is vital, I think, for the future. And TikTok makes a big deal of the fact that it is a sound on platform. You know, we had years and years of, oh, you can watch videos online without having audio on. You can watch them quietly at work sneakily because we'll put subtitles on everything. It doesn't really work on TikTok. It needs to be sound on immersive. Yeah, that's fair. Screen. Yeah. Final question before I ask where people can buy your book. You created some content on TikTok to explore, to navigate. Was that essential to the writing of the book was it silly pr what what did you learn i suppose is what i'm asking yeah so i when i was doing the promotion for the youtube book my publisher said you should do stuff on youtube and i said i don't think i can because you get caught out very easily people can see through what is promotion and what is actual you know they would know that i was going to be on there for a month and then i was going to disappear i've been doing stuff on tiktok for a little while now and it is you know largely book promotion stuff but it is informing people about you know, information from uh the app and, and various sources that i have but i think i'm going to stick around like it because it is so much easier that's what i yeah. think is really fascinating about it and yeah I'm learning what people like. I kind of had a hunch already, and by had a hunch, I mean had access to all the internal documentation. And I'm not meant to. That tells me what is important and what is relevant and how to work. But even then, I'm, you know, I haven't cracked the algorithm yet. I had one video that did 500,000 views, um, but all the others are, you know, at most four or five thousand, but usually more around the 200 mark. So okay. you know, I still have a lot to learn on TikTok, and that's what's really exciting about it. Even after writing this book. <laughs> so go on then. Where can people find you on social media, and where should people buy the book, Chris? So you can find me on Twitter at Stokel, which is S-T-O-K-E-L. If you really want to follow me on TikTok, then good luck. I'm Stokel, but with a zero instead of an O. Uh, you can buy the book at all good bookshops. You can buy it online at that big one if you want, or you can support independent retailers. It's also available through um, the publisher's website, which is Canbury Press. Nice. There isn't an audio book, is there? And there wasn't one for the YouTube one, or have I got that wrong? There was one for the YouTube one, but um, I see. it was read by a Canadian voice actor that we got who didn't know how to pronounce the word Neistat, uh, okay. which is worrying when Casey Neistat is one of the biggest YouTubers in the world. So... I, How did they pronounce it out of interest? Neistat. Okay. Um, and so I, I, yeah, it, it, the, the two weren't directly connected. I think, to be honest, part of the reason that there isn't an audiobook yet, and there may be one, is because of that butting up against the yes. the time to the publication. I see. 
But I think also maybe my publisher was a little bit scared of quite how angry I got at Casey Neistat and decided that um, it maybe wasn't worth it. Great. That's a funny moment to leave it on. So there we go. We'll leave that with that. Chris, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for your time and very best of luck with the sales of the book. No worries. Thank you so much, James. As always, really appreciate it. I told you it was good, didn't I? Chris Stokel-Walker, an awesome journalist, an awesome conversationalist. Uh, Like I said, I could have chatted to him all day, but luckily for you, we distilled it down to just two hours with the first interview that we did in season two of Rocket Fuel. Do have a look at the archive. Do tell your friends if you think they would get something from this podcast. And also, be sure to tune in next week for the next edition of Rocket Fuel.